Hi, everybody. This show is a project of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art. We've launched a new series of podcasts examining the relevance of the classical tradition today, and this is the next episode of our debut miniseries, Cities We Live In. We're excited to bring new topics to new audiences and want your feedback. Write to podcasts at classicist.org with your comments. This show is sponsored by Historical Concepts. You can find them online at historicalconcepts.com or on Instagram at historicalconcepts. Welcome to Cities We Live In. I'm Kellen Krauss, an architect who grew up in the suburbs and is now living the city life. Each time I return home, I think about what lessons can be applied from a traditional walkable city to car-oriented developments. On this show, I'll travel from city to city with two fellow architects and urbanists. Hi, my name is Rodrigo Boyat Montenegro. And I am Anthony Catania. We'll meet up with friends who can tell us all about what it's like to live in their city. In this episode, we visit Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's big enough to feel like a big city, but it's small enough to feel really rooted. It feels like a local community. When we meet people that have been to Tulsa, they're just super excited. Oh, I traveled there for business one time, or I visited, I went to a wedding. I love it, it's amazing, it's the best hidden secret there is. We definitely feel like that as well. That's Jennifer Griffin, founding principal of J. Griffin Design. She and her husband John, an associate principal at Seltzer Schaefer Architects, are based in Tulsa as architects and urban designers, where they work with their community to improve their built environment. We both went to Notre Dame for undergrad and grad, but actually met in London working at Dimitri Perfiris' office. He was the only other American in the office, I'd like to say. <laughs> so we ended up together <laughs> and then moved back, worked in New York City and Washington, D.C., and took a stint teaching back at our alma mater at Notre Dame, being involved in a pretty cool research project there. After that, we started a family and decided to move to Tulsa to be closer to family. I'm from Pittsburgh originally. I'm a transplant. John's from Tulsa, grew up here, a big family here. When I first heard about Tulsa, I was like, what state is that in? Having traveled and visited here before I moved here, just blown away by the place. We were fortunate enough to be at a, a transition point of our careers that we said, it was a risk. We don't know what it's going to be like. Can I do urban design from Tulsa, let alone traditional Glasgow architecture? I, I don't know. But we just took the plunge because we knew that's where we wanted to try it out with our family. We knew it would be good for our kids and we wanted to be close. There's some amazing things here too on a smaller scale, really great little main streets and places where you get to know the local owner. The quality of life is at a different scale, but the elements are there. It also has a lot of amenities. Having lived in New York and Brooklyn right next to Prospect Park, and some of the greatest world-renowned amenities in London. It has an amazing museum scene and art scene. The collections just blew my mind. Geographically, it is laid out on a grid. It was the railroad that determined where the downtown was going to start. It was that easiest crossing point across the river, which later came into play with the history of Route 66, which comes across Tulsa championing that point of crossing the river. 
the arts district was the oldest neighborhood, the oldest area that was platted for Tulsa, just north of the tracks. Then it started to expand south, what we call the IDL inside the inner dispersal loop. That's got the great mid-rise deco buildings or downtown. And then the grid rotates. It, it shifts because it was oriented to the rail tracks. So a section's added to the east of the town shifts and it sets up some really nice urban moments where we've got a spectacular church, Boston Avenue United Methodist Church, that has this exquisite Bruskoff Tower that a rotated, shifted axis, but aligned with Boston Avenue or our significant downtown street. So that's the most urban, dense, big city feel. And then we have the river that West Tulsa has some of the best views then overlooking downtown and great trails that run up and down either side of it. So on the north side, there's our arts district. And on the south of that is our Deco District, Blue Dome District, East Village. Uh, a lot of these different areas have really come up and been revitalized. And, and then outside the IDL, we have a series of shoulder or collar neighborhoods like Ring or around the downtown. And they generally built in 1920s, 1930s, 1910s. And there's some really great building stock in there. Some of them have been established and have kept their population and generally have been well kept. A lot of them during suburban flight and people moving out decreased in population, building stock suffered. And so some of them are in the process of being revitalized and people are investing in. Some of them are still waiting for that investment to happen. From the Native American roots and still very present here in, in the region to the discovery of the oil early 1900s. This became the oil capital of the world. This was the Dubai of its day. We had our own chandelier company that was making these beautiful chandeliers for these exquisite Art Deco lobbies where they were bringing craftsmen over from Italy to do some of the detailed stonework to fit these spaces out. It's just incredible. And so we have that legacy here, these wonderful, beautiful buildings. At the same time, oh, it was a couple of years ago now, really funny article where we won, the, they called it the Golden Crater Award for most <laughs> devastating amount of surface parking in a downtown. So there's this dichotomy, right? With these gorgeous buildings, we lost a lot of them, like many cities did. Hopefully we're beyond that era now and we're making good use of what we have and celebrating that rich history. Yeah, there's a lot of construction going on. So where there was a hole, there's an opportunity now. It doesn't happen maybe as quickly as the booming metros at scale and scope and rate of change, but it's definitely going in the right direction. And there's a lot of people coming back and investing both their knowledge and their expertise and their love for the place. What is helping spur that change? Is it an increase in population? Is it a return to traditional principles? What's making all these parking lots go away and these new parks come in place and everything stay walkable? There's a big push on the economic development front of things where civic leaders, corporations, private philanthropists have been looking to what's going to attract the next generation of leaders and how do we keep the top talent in the area and be able to continue to recruit because there are great jobs available and we're not able to fill all of them. So in terms of growth, we're not expanding dramatically at the moment in terms of population, but there's certainly opportunity to do so given the infrastructure, the amenities, everything that's in place. There are some regulations that make things easy and somewhere we're behind the curve. For instance, we have no parking requirements in our downtown, which is great. Wow. You can come in, a developer can just weigh what their needs are in terms of shared parking, be really creative about that and do a very dense development. But at the same time, still weighing that against the right 
economic moment and time opportunity to move forward with development. We're privy to lots of plans that are out there and just slowly hitting over the years in terms of the infill. So certainly not for a lack of vision. That's really exciting around here. So many people engaged and coming up with great ideas about where Tulsa is going next and contributing big dollars. Because of the oil history, there is generations of philanthropic families and institutions in Tulsa. And they've spurred a lot of this, not just the physical development of a place, but also how can we cultivate and attract talent to come here for jobs or for opportunities. And so there's a program now, Tulsa Remote, and it provides grants for families or professionals who want to relocate here. And they say, hey, we're going to give you a certain amount of money. And they agree to live here for a certain period of time with the hope that they fall in love with the place and bring their skill set here and their business. So there are programs like that in place, among others, that are helping to attract talent. What we find is when people come here, they're realizing there are other creative that are here that are actually trying to do really cool stuff. And it's at a scale that it's easy to meet people and they end up staying. I remember you talking about jumping from one place to another. You guys mentioned that in order to make an impact on a community, you have to commit to it. I'm curious to know more about your involvement in Tulsa over the years and how it has impacted you and how your involvement has impacted the community at large. It was back in grad school, scribbling on the margins, notes. What are the top things that need to happen in order to make great urbanism? And the first one on the list was find the place where you want to die and then move there until it happens. I think part of this has been maturing our place in life. We found home. And so now we're, we're settled here and as big or as small as our impact may be, there's that gratification that comes through this sense of commitment to a place. There are the equally disappointing moments, right? Because everybody in the community, you get that much more frustrated when something doesn't move forward and doesn't happen. Like everyone has a great vision, right? Uh, How to make it work. But at the same time, yeah, we're seeing so many fruits of just being present, which is really exciting. So a little history about Tulsa. Race relations here, and even to this day, are are still very raw and and tense given the history of this part of the country and and specifically what has happened in Tulsa over its history. We're coming up upon the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. It completely obliterated the, the very entrepreneurial and wonderful Black community that existed north of our downtown. It was called Black Wall Street because it, it was basically like a mini Wall Street that the black community had come around and, and created this whole neighborhood that was thriving economically and socially. And there was a riot that turned into a massacre. And so the, the whole area had just been obliterated, was even bombed. Later on in the 70s and 80s, the black community had rebuilt it after the massacre. But it was again taken through urban renewal and eminent domain for a university. But that collective university never fully built it out. And so met some folks when we first moved here that were involved in social issues, but also had found this connection between the built environment. We obviously had a lot in common and a lot to talk about. And it was through our recent teaching stint at Notre Dame, and we had talked about what we did in Notre Dame. Let's bring that here. How can you help us bring Notre Dame here to work with our community? That area is just this blank slate right now, right adjacent to our downtown. The thought was, let's bring in Notre Dame and talk about 
this concept of how can we build and how can we recreate, how can we heal what has happened and how can we make good on this and what does that look like? So locally spent about six months with our colleagues here reaching out to people and talking about fundraising to help offset the cost for the students to come, networking with people to, to talk about the opportunity and there was a huge positive response locally. We had over 80 people show up at the charrette meetings. It's a very grassroots thing that the neighborhood association is located next to this site, spearheaded. We didn't really wait for the city to fund it or for any entity to step up. We relied on folks that really were interested in, in letting the community dream a bit here. Though it wasn't an official process or a plan that would be adopted by the city, it had a huge turnout and it became the catalyst for a lot of really great conversations and a lot of great ideas that are now being seriously looked at in a number of issues that Tulsa is exploring right now and is, is pursuing from incremental development to how do you build local strength and opportunities for local entrepreneurship. I and mean, thinking about the growth of this neighborhood to affordable housing, to highways, to boulevards. Prior to this, people had maybe heard about walkability and that sort of thing, but it became this platform to really engage on a very genuine level. It's, it's brought a lot of good here. When working with the community, how do you approach the idea of neighborhood improvement and new development in a way that is inclusive of the residents that are already a part of the community, but also as a way for the community to grow and prosper in the future? We're starting to see uh, from, again, a grassroots initiative, small groups uh, coming together to give tools to new developers, to young developers, to those working at a very small incremental scale, which is incredibly exciting. That's a big component of this is allowing people to build local wealth themselves. So mm -hmm. both in taking advantage of master planning areas where you can do small lots and do small infill building types on those lots. To Jen mentioned these nonprofit developers, there's one in particular crossover community mm -hmm. and, and they're doing this very thing. It's a church community that they have a health clinic that they started. They've been doing uh, tutoring and, and work in the local schools. And now one branch of this group is going in and not just redeveloping in neighborhoods, but they're using local talent, local builders, developers, giving skills training to go in and do this work themselves mm -hmm. and then go and build and implement. And so we'd love to see that replicated on a larger scale. One of the reasons why we're so hopeful for this work in Greenwood and North Tulsa in particular around historic Black Wall Street, where there's this incredible opportunity there to become a national model, really, for this work, both in combination with community land trusts and with incremental development to build something that's going to create wealth for the long term. Uh, for, for, for the local, for local community, residents. yeah, which is crazy given the history, because that's how Black Wall Street was created the first time mm -hmm. and was rebuilt afterwards. So there's a lot of opportunities out there, and, and hopefully Tulsa can end up showcasing and utilizing and setting up some of these models that can really provide an opportunity to answer for other communities to learn from. So. Thinking about the scale of the neighborhood, do you suppose that as long as you get the bones of the neighborhood correct, perhaps the scale of the city at large, how dense it is, is it as big as New York City and millions of people, or is it as sort of middle ground is Tulsa around 500,000, 400,000, or if it's 30,000, some suburb in the middle of the country. Is there an ideal density that affects the neighborhood and the quality of life in your neighborhood? 
in order to support a walkable mixed-use lifestyle, right, you have to have a certain number of people within walking distance of those mix of uses to economically support them. That's a math equation, right? That's not just what do you want it to be? There's a certain catchment area these stores need to have uh, people patronizing them to survive, and that has to be within walking distance. What does that density look like in the physicality? What does that neighborhood feel like when you have 6,000 people per square mile or 40,000 people? people per square mile. There are some really wonderful Tulsa scale neighborhoods that that density is attained. It's through good planning and understanding how do you attain that density, but in a scale that's appropriate to the community that you're in. I teach an urban design course here, and I like to show them a picture of what a walkable mixed-use neighborhood that can support itself looks like. And I often show a picture of Chicago some of the neighborhoods like Lincoln Park and say, look, that's a scale that doesn't feel out of place here in Tulsa, but has grocery stores and a library and a school. It has the stuff that you need to make a, a neighborhood work, but it's done in a way that doesn't look like downtown Dubai. It still feels comfortable. It's showing people what that physically looks like through precedent and through other places that helps them overcome this density fear. And then showing them the tools of way to increase the density of a neighborhood that doesn't make it seem out of scale or, or scary. You begin to show them these building types exist in Tulsa, right? The six flat, the duplex, the fourplex, the cottage courtyard. They actually exist here. They were built 100 years ago and they're loved and they're beautiful and they're occupied we can start building that way again and our neighborhoods can again have those densities that are needed to support the mix of uses. Metro scale is important, but you got to make sure you get granular scale right and understand that as well. So speaking of building new traditional buildings again, as traditional architects, what has been your experience in Tulsa? What is the scene like for traditional architecture there? There's not been this strong ideological current in Tulsa where the architectural elite have grabbed hold of the conversation and said, every new building must be a reflection of this, that, that and the other. So one can come in and very reasonably have a conversation yeah. about traditional architecture. Mm-hmm. We've been very fortunate to be involved in several multifamily projects that typically would be skinned in something that was EFIS or a throwaway material of some kind where they said, nope, all four facades are important. This is going to contribute to a walkable Main Street setting. Let's do this all in brick. That's been great. There, people are just very common sense oriented. Yeah. You know? So sure, let's let's talk. Bring them to the table and they get that. So you get a mix of, of architecture, but you don't get people really battling each other and fighting and saying, well, I can't believe you did something that looks like it was from the 1920s. But at the same time, there's a, there's a real respect there where no one's saying we can't do anything that a modernist type building either. We, we do have a, a real legacy of mid-century modernism. A lot of great examples of those, very futuristic type buildings here that people love as well. So that's all part of the mix. The interesting thing is, though, so in our neighborhood, what you get is these cycles, but variety of building types, actually, and materials. In our neighborhood, there's mansions built in the 1920s right next to two-bedroom starter homes. And so it's a really good mix in terms of social demographics, economics in a neighborhood that also helps it financially survive as, as a neighborhood. It's been interesting. You have very traditional looking craftsmen, vernacular homes built wood, wood siding next to these amazing brick manor homes with stone 
details all mixed up at once. There's a lot of variety here, at least in the traditional neighborhoods. And once you get beyond that, it's probably similar to what you find in other cities in their suburban areas. But in the traditional neighborhood, there's quite a bit of variety in the craftsmanship that you see in the details. And then Tulsa, a lot of the older homes on the bigger scale, once the two-story homes would have a covered porch, and then on the second floor, a, a screened-in uh, sleeping porch. So just as a, a way of people would beat the heat thing, and, and they'd actually sleep outside there. And so a lot of those you still see in place. Uh, they're just often enclosed now, glazed in. But you have these little rooms over porches that are a nice feature that we hadn't run across too much before. Mm-hmm. There's quite a bit of prairie style, but predominantly craftsmen, which you find the most of. And then you get these wonderful classical moments like the Philbrook Museum. This is a now civic building, once private, which is just an absolute jewel for the city. It was donated to the city to become a museum, but was built by the Phillips family, Wade Phillips. Uh, it was an oil businessman who built this residence, uh, then what was considered the suburbs of the outskirts of the city, this private Italianate villa. It, it references Villa Lante, and it has some fantastic moments in some of the best gardens, certainly in the region. People are drawn there from all over, more so just for the setting and the architecture, the story of the place. It, it has all kinds of cool little things about it. They built a, a glass block dance floor in, into one of the wings that then opens onto an outdoor terrace that had rotating colored lights under it. Part of their lifestyle and what they had been exposed to in Europe. Um, yeah, this is like 100 years ago. <laughs> so it's, it's cool. just all, yeah, a wonderful investment that was then given to the city. In our day, unrivaled in terms of the amount of wealth that was here locally and the building tradition that was taking place and are unfolding. People now use and enjoy that all the time. That's just amazing that we have that as part of our legacy. Tulsa is the perfect home for us and, and where we are now. Not that we couldn't see ourselves having continued to live in Brooklyn. That was equally a wonderful experience. It, it just is meshing well with where circumstances have brought us. It would be an encouragement to others, though, to in seeking to plug in maybe a city returning where you've grown up or to really be able to connect and make a difference. We can walk to downtown, we can walk to museums, we can ride our bike to great parks, and yet we can see family. You're stepping into the unknown a little bit. There's some risk in doing it, but it's incredibly rewarding, connecting and being engaged at a smaller scale. A neighborhood's identity is defined by the community which inhabits it and the experience and character of its buildings and streets. The pronounced Bruce Goff Tower beckons us together And Greenwood's former glory reminds us of the opportunities that could be for all. A traditional city's architectural and urban character crystallize shared local values that in turn shape its citizens, which can lead to human flourishing or just as powerfully prevent it. This effect is why John and Jennifer Griffin are working so diligently to build places that matter by returning to traditional principles of design. Tulsa today embodies the desire to live in a bustling community and economy with as much beauty as its inhabitants can muster. It's a city we live in, vibrant and full of life. This is a production of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, a national nonprofit promoting the practice, understanding, and appreciation of classical design. To become a member and learn about additional programming, visit classicist.org.
This episode was edited and produced by me, Kellen Krauss, Rodrigo Bojat Montenegro, and Justin Kegley, with additional editing by Molly Wolforth. Many thanks to our sponsor, Historical Concepts. Find them online at historicalconcepts.com or on Instagram at historicalconcepts.com.